non-violent resistance is a philosophy based around, well, non-violence. Non-violent resistance has resulted in some of the greatest transformational effects in the world. From the ending of British rule in India to the end of apartheid in South Africa or the end of segregation in the United States. Some of the greatest names, especially of the last century, have been key figures in this movement. Nelson Mandela, Mahatma Gandhi and Martin Luther King. Three names and perhaps the three most respected people of the 20th century. Non-violent resistance actually changes the world. From 1966 to 1999, non-violent civic resistance played a crucial role in 50 of 67 transitions from authoritarianism. Furthermore, non-violent resistance continues to be the easiest and best way for great change to occur in a variety of circumstances. So what do we mean by non-violent resistance? Non-violent resistant movements often employ a variety of tactics while not using force, it is still proactive and can be just as brave and dangerous as violent resistance itself. Indeed, I would say it is braver to not fight in the face of violence than to fight. Types of non-violent history include information warfare, picketing, marches, vigils, leafleting, protest art, protest movement and poetry, community education, consciousness raising, lobbying, tax resistance, civil disobedience, boycotts, sanctions, legal and diplomatic wrestling, underground railroads and principled refusal of awards and honours, and then lastly, general strikes. So is non-violent resistance an invention? I would argue, yes. It is a distinct entity from pacifism, which is passive. Non-violent resistance is active. One indicator that non-violent resistance is not a natural occurring phenomenon is that no language on earth has an original word for non-violent resistance. The word non-violence is simply a negation of the word violence. It is not a naturally occurring phenomenon. Furthermore, the fact there is no active word for non-violent resistance could be because the idea has been seen as one of the more dangerous ideas in history. You can fight violence with violence, but how do you fight non-violence? Non-violent resistance is two separate things coming together to make the one. Non-violence and then resistance. Non-violence is well attested to, and so is resistance. But putting the two together took far longer than you might think. Most of the world's religions discuss non-violence. Hinduism claims to be the oldest religion, and they ascribe non-violence to be the perfect, unobtainable ideal. Jains keep their mouths masked to ensure they do not accidentally inhale tiny insects. Buddhism forbids the taking of life, but this results in a wide range of interpretations. In Tibet, they try to take a life so cleanly that they suffocate animals so no blood is spilt. 
compare this to Jews who cleanly slit the throat and then remove all the blood, as this is seen as cleaner in their culture. A matter of perspective, I suppose. In Japan, Buddhists developed the meditation school commonly known as Zen. The idea was the suppression of the body to reach a higher level of meditation. A few centuries later, and Zen was intertwined with the warrior code in Japan. You can therefore draw a direct link between Zen Buddhism and the Japanese militarism of the 1930s and 1940s. Judaism, at 5,700 years old, has a few absolute cornerstones of its philosophy. It is monotheistic, and the Ten Commandments are sacrosanct. The Sixth Commandment is clear, Thou shalt not kill. The shortest commandment, and it comes with no commentary or exceptions. Even with this, there were still wars. The victory in 166 BC by a guerrilla army led by the Maccabees against the Seleucid rulers of Palestine, which Christopher Hitchens called one of the worst events in human history, as it removed the Hellenistic Jews from mainstream Jewish life, and all the subsequent results of this, is one clear event of Jewish violence. Indeed, such was the lip service paid to the non-violence that the Ten Commandments pronounced, that the Maccabean Revolt is celebrated in Jewish life as Hanukkah, and it wasn't until the 1890s, under the influence of Zionists, when the holiday became more forcefully supported. Like Zen monks, Zionists knew how to use religion for political ends. Most religions claim to shun warfare, but then quickly become co-opted by violent people who govern society and use this religion as an excuse for warfare. If somebody was to start a movement who rejected violence in all forms, he would then surely have to be killed. But his legend might far outgrow his words, and that person might become deified and praised. The most obvious example of this was Jesus of Nazareth. In Jesus' view of Jewish law, there was no reason for violence. Weapons, military and war were clearly illegal, and Jesus was therefore seen as dangerous. The authorities saw him as a challenge. How could there be authority without force? For the Romans, the greatest military power the Western world had thus seen, this could not simply be accepted. Jesus was of course killed on a crucifix, but Jesus' legacy did not end there. Nonviolence taught by Jesus would result in the start of a new Jewish cult that followed the teachings of Jesus. It came to be known as Christianity. The book of Matthew wrote, quote, You have heard it said, an eye for an eye, and a tooth for a tooth. But I say unto you, resist not him that is evil. The rejection of the eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth line from the book of Exodus marks a clear distinction for this new sect. There were many military men in the Bible, David, Samson, Joshua and Gideon, but Jesus told that Jewish law should hold people to a higher account. For 284 years after Jesus' death, Christianity was seen as a crazy anti-war cult. 
So you can understand why, to the Romans, with all their military victories, they decided to persecute Christians harshly. Numerous stories have come down to us regarding how fervently early Christians believed this anti-war message. And you can imagine quite how dangerous this would have been to the Roman Empire. There are a couple of examples of Christians refusing to fight during this period. In 274 AD, modern-day Algeria, Fabius Victor had a son called Maximilianus, who was drafted into the military when he turned 21. But he told the proconsul of Africa that he could not enter the military because his first duty was to the teachings of Christ. The proconsul executed him. History records Maximilianus as the first martyred conscientious objector. Another example was Martin, who refused to go into battle against the Gauls. He said in 336 AD that he was a soldier of Christ and therefore could not fight. He was called a coward, which he refuted. The emperor decided that a fitting end would be for Martin to walk unarmed onto the battlefield at the front of the Roman army to face certain death. Luckily for Martin, a peace was negotiated with the Gauls before the battle took place. Martin died 61 years later of natural causes. Both Martin and Maximilianus are now saints. Martin was later proclaimed as a saint with the feast of St. Martin falling on the 11th of November, which, perhaps not coincidentally, is Armistice Day. But the event which changed Christianity forever and effectively ended Christian non-violence was Constantine, Emperor of Rome, converting to Christianity. Constantine painted crosses on the shields of his armies, built huge churches and turned Christianity into an agent of the state. Christianity became the religion of the Roman state, and that state was violent. With this, Christianity became a more violent religion. The ideal of a just war, invented by St. Augustine, was pushed ever further, and with little resistance it led to the Crusades against Islam. Islam toyed with the notions of peace, but it too found itself spread by extreme violence very early on. There was little open resistance to the church, as its reliance on war was all-consuming. One of the few ways to challenge this was to join a monastery. Monasteries became refuges for those who rejected violence and war, and instead became places of learning and production. They had huge libraries, produced some of the finest artisanal products in the West, and invented things such as musical notion, which was developed by a monk named Notka the Stammerer, and it spread throughout monasteries to musicians. While the church put aside its interdiction on Christians bearing arms, monasteries rigorously maintained the ruling. There were Christian movements over the Middle Ages who rejected violence in an attempt to return to what was viewed as a more biblically realistic version of Christianity. Many of these movements became part of the Protestant Reformation. The most famous were the Anabaptists. Between 1525 and 1800, there were more than 200 decrees denouncing them, as they preached 
that only adults who could consent should be baptised and a refusal to bear arms. Colonialism was not a good period for the idea of non-violence. One of the most famous non-violence movements were the Quakers. Coming of age during the British Revolution and favoured by Oliver Cromwell and the Puritans, there were numerous Quaker colonists set up in the New World, but many of these failed. The most famous of them all was Pennsylvania, founded by William Penn. It was designed to be an experiment of non-violence. Of course, Pennsylvania still exists, but not as a Quaker colony. The eastern lands of Pennsylvania were given to more warlike settlers as a barrier between the Quakers and the so-called Indian savages. The Quakers attempted to teach their philosophy to the Indians, but with the French on one side and the British on the other, non-violence didn't seem like any sort of solution. Quakers lasted in power until elections in 1756, which voted the Quaker bloc out of power. And it's interesting to think what could have happened if colonists did genuinely espouse a non-violent philosophy. Much of the reasons for the attacks on the Native Americans is reminiscent of Rome's attack on Carthage. We have to attack them before they attack us. Indeed, humans' first act in conflict has almost always been to reach for a stone tool, a club, a saw, a crossbow, a musket, a rifle, a machine gun, an AK-47, rather than seeing what could be done through pure non-violence. The American Revolution, it's said, was won by the sword, and George Washington's sword at that. But there is a thought by some that independence could have been won if the methods of evading tax, damaging British property like tea, and other forms of non-violent resistance had been used. John Adams wrote in his later years to Thomas Jefferson that, quote, The revolution was in the minds of the people and the union of the colonies, both of which were accomplished before the hostilities commenced. Close quotes. The idea that the British would have given up America without military conflict isn't too far-fetched an idea. The British ended up giving up the US when the US only had very few military victories. The British gave up America because it was unprofitable and costing too much money. Money which could have been used elsewhere, such as fighting wars on the European continent. As Mark Kulansky says, quote, it is very possible that British withdrawal could have been achieved by continuing protest and economic sabotage. The United States Civil War is the deadliest war in American history. Slavery is bad, but American slavery was the worst of the lot, with no chance of freedom and no rights. Most slaves in history have had some rights or ways to be set free. During the 1830s, 40s and 50s, there was much concern from pacifists about what to do about slavery. Most abolitionists did not believe violence could be used in a good cause. But as the 1850s started, the atmosphere of violence became more pronounced. Many, such as Wendell Phillips, started to approve of violence in the defence of runaway slaves. 
When war came, the non-violent movement was silenced, as happens time and time again in war. By the time war came, it was too late to debate the possibility of a non-violent approach. But one wonders what would have happened if the abolitionists had engaged in economic measures against slavery. The buying out of slave farms, refusing to buy any southern products that even hinted at slave involvement, could have all worked. We simply don't know. Perhaps the closest thing to non-violence by natives during this time was on the other side of the world, in the far South Pacific, on one of the last places inhabited by humans. The first people were the Polynesians in 1250-1300 AD. We, we now call these islands New Zealand. And soon after their western discovery, many people, Polynesians and Europeans, settled here. The Polynesians called themselves the Children of Heaven, or the Maori, and from 1845 to 1872, they resisted the British military. Of course, they were no match for the British Empire, and soon there were only 40,000 Maori alive, compared to the half-million white settlers. Then, in a time of need, a visionary leader came to prominence. Tiwiti emerged in the southern coast of New Zealand's North Island, in a place called Parihaka, and many survivors fled to this place, where they were allowed to stay on condition they destroyed their weapons. Tiwiti announced it was his intention to negotiate a peace treaty between two equal peoples. Many people came to Parihaka, including some white people. Tiwiti encouraged them all to make everything they needed for themselves and not to buy British goods. The land Tiwiti had claimed was technically white land, but the Maori settlers went out and ploughed the white man's land that they claimed for themselves. The British were not happy. They confronted the ploughmen, but the ploughmen remained calm and did not fight back. They simply continued to plough the fields they claimed as their own. While the colonial administration hesitated about what to do next, a group of angry white settlers declared an independent republic and pledged to kill the ploughmen. Tiwiti instructed non-violence in the face of this threat, and oddly, the white settlers panicked in the face of non-violence. Local newspapers ordered a war of extermination, and this made the government react, and they arrested the ploughmen and shipped them to the South Island without trial. Many died from poor conditions, but still more ploughmen came out to plough the fields they claimed for themselves. Then the army moved in and dug trenches ready for a battle, but the former Maori warriors met the army and gave them gifts. By 1880, the British and New Zealand government, effectively the white people, worked out they had spent one million pounds on trying to put down the rebellion. The cause became something of an obsession in the New Zealand press. There were now hundreds of Maori every day ploughing the land and offering no violent resistance. The local constabulary raised 2,500 men and made their way into the centre of town to tell the ploughers they had one hour to leave. Several hours later, Ntiwiti walked out to meet the mob. He was arrested, but the ploughing didn't stop, and they started picking up new tactics of non-violence, including tax avoidance. 
There was no grand resolution to this movement. In the end, the threats of violence dissipated and the prisoners were released. The plowers did not get back their land, but neither did a genocide happen, as it looked like it could have done at the start of the movement. Now, 20% of New Zealand's population is Maori. Compare this to the New World, and one can wonder what might have happened if the same tactics had been used in the New World. This event shows a common theme within the non-violence movement. Non-violence must be espoused at all times, even if you are attacked. Also, there must be an easy clown down for the side offering the violence. They need an easy way out. The side using the violence are normally the ones with power, so they will think of it as humiliation. Give them a simple solution. In the Western political canon, however, Tiwiti is not credited as the inventor of non-violent resistance. In modern philosophy, there is one text that rises above all the others in terms of importance. Henry David Thoreau's essay, Civil Disobedience. Civil disobedience is the active, professed refusal of a citizen to obey certain laws, demands, orders or commands of a government or occupying international power. Civil disobedience, largely stemming from Henry David Thoreau's essay, has, in modern times, become the way that non-violent resistance has manifested itself. We've seen in many episodes how one important theoretical text or essay can start off the whole history of an invention. Resistance to Civil Government by Henry David Thoreau has proved the foundational text of non-violent resistance in modern times, and not just in the West. Published in 1849, Thoreau argues that individuals should not permit governments to overrule or atrophy their consciences, and that they have a duty to avoid allowing such acquiescences to enable the government to make them the agents of injustice. Thoreau was motivated in part by his disgust with slavery and the Mexican-American War of 1846-1848. The text is also interesting for originating the quote that, quote, that government is best which governs the least, close quotes. The text proved foundational for many later who we will talk about. Gandhi once said about Thoreau that he was, quote, a great writer, philosopher and poet and, withal, a most practical man, that is, he taught nothing he was not prepared to practice in himself. He was one of the greatest and most moral men America has produced. At the time of the abolition of slavery movement, he wrote his famous essay on the duty of civil disobedience. He went to jail for the sake of his principles and suffering humanity. His essay has, therefore, been sanctified by suffering, Moreover, it is written for all time. Its incisive logic is unanswerable. Martin Luther King said in his autobiography, quote, During my student days, I read Henry David Thoreau's essay on civil disobedience for the first time. Here, in his courageous New England refusal to pay his taxes and his choice of jail rather than support a war, that would spread slavery's territory into Mexico, 
I made my first contact with the theory of non-violent resistance. Fascinated by the idea of refusing to cooperate with an evil system, I was so deeply moved that I reread the work several times. I became convinced that non-cooperation with evil is as much a moral obligation as is cooperation with good. No other person has been more eloquent and passionate in getting this idea across than Henry David Thoreau. As a result of his writings and personal witness, we are the heirs of a legacy of creative protest. The teachings of Thoreau came alive in our civil rights movement. Indeed, they are more alive than ever before. Whether expressed in a sit-in at lunch counters, a freedom ride into Mississippi, a peaceful protest in Albany, Georgia, a bus boycott in Montgomery, Alabama, these are outgrowths of Thoreau's insistence that evil must be resisted and that no moral man can patiently adjust to injustice. Close quotes. Others from Tolstoy, John F. Kennedy, Hemingway Proust and William Butler Yeats have all been inspired by Thoreau's writing. But rather than focus on theory, non-violent resistance is not a theoretical movement, but an active one measured in results. Non-violent resistance has been used as a tactic. It should not be looked at as an ideology. Facing Nazism or Japanese fascism, non-violent resistance may not have worked. Though Gandhi once said in November 1938 of European Jewry, quote, I am convinced that if someone with the courage and vision can arise among them to lead them in non-violent action, the winter of their despair can, in the twinkling of an eye, be turned into the summer of hope. Close quotes. Effectively saying Jews should have walked willingly to their own death. An appalling statement on the face of it, but with a bit of background, you can see where Gandhi is coming from. Mass non-violent resistance is one thing, but meekly walking to your own death is entirely another. Of course, very few Jews were saved by violence, but still, non-violent resistance in Denmark saved more Jews than violence in France. But in Denmark, it was more akin to sabotage and neo-guerrilla warfare than Martin Luther King-esque non-violent resistance. It should strike us as odd how peaceful the West is today. The 20th century was brutal. War, genocide, democide. The killing and death never stopped. Now these things of history are just that. History. We neither expect nor want the death on the scale that has infected much of the West during this time. Part of this is undoubtedly due to the rise of non-violent resistance and non-violent methods of a few famous names who pushed for non-violent actions. Furthermore, the idea that non-violent resistance is the obvious answer to the state's monopoly on power is not an obvious one, but an ingenious one. The state is founded and run by having the monopoly on legitimised force. Max Weber stated that, quote, Politics operates with very special means, namely power backed up by violence, close quotes. In St. Helena, Napoleon wrote the dictum, quote, General rule, no social revolution without terror, close quotes. In 1917, Lenin asserted that, quote, 
not a single question pertaining to the class struggle has ever been settled except for violence. Close quotes. But this is simply not true, or it's not been true since the invention of non-violent resistance. Many revolutions have proved themselves to be bloody affairs, but even the Russian Revolution and the ease at which the Bolsheviks took power was because of the near unanimity of their support. Though it would be churlish to state that the Bolsheviks would carry on this supposed non-violence. The Nazi takeover in 1933 was almost purely by non-violent methods. After the failed Beer Hall Putsch of 1923, Hitler pursued a tactic of legal strategy. Hitler claimed his was, quote, the least violent revolution in history, close quotes. Hitler, unlike Lenin, did not have to fight a civil war to consolidate his rule. Mohandas Karamachand Gandhi is an odd man. He was a British-educated lawyer, a Hindu, but also influenced by Jainism, Buddhism and Jesus. And, as a man of letters, he was also influenced by Tolstoy and Henry David Thoreau. Gandhi had odd theories about many things. He took up a meat diet as a youngster, hoping it would make him strong like the British. And his father died while Gandhi was 16 and having sex with his new wife. Gandhi was to later blame his father's death on the rejection and neglect of his carnal desires. Into his old age, he would often take attractive young women to bed with him and lie naked with them to test his resolve to remain chaste. Freud would have had a field day. However, a commitment to non-violence was always there. In 1921, he said, quote, Given a just cause, capacity for endless suffering and avoidance of violence, victory is certain. Close quotes. The British did not take Gandhi seriously. Even when he argued for an economic counter to their authority, by rejecting the use of cloth from British mills. But Gandhi was no saint, rather he was an arch-pragmatist who saw the use of non-violence as the best political tactic. He described non-active passivism as cowardice. When he went into South Africa as a lawyer, he found much racial discrimination. The formative event for him was being thrown out of a first-class train carriage by a white man even though he paid for the ticket. During another 24-hour train journey, he read John Ruskin's Unto This Last, which recommended a life of austerity, material simplicity and self-control. When the British colony of Natal in South Africa was about to pass a bill to disenfranchise the Indians in South Africa, Gandhi found his calling. In the South African caste system, the Indians were above the blacks, but below the white British and Dutch Boers. The Indians had arrived in South Africa as indentured servants in the late 19th century, but they quickly began to enter into the fringes of political life as their financial situation rapidly improved. With these new draconian measures threatening to re-indenture Indians and place exorbitant taxes and many other restrictions on their liberty, it was to London where Gandhi sent his appeals. Gandhi's original tactic was to suck up to the British establishment 
and appeal to their liberty and the quote-unquote liberal nature of the British Empire. He thought that British power lay in being strong materially but weak spiritually. During this time he began his interest in non-violence by reading Tolstoy's The Kingdom of God is Within You, a Christian pacifist manifesto, and it wasn't long before Gandhi and Tolstoy corresponded. With the 1905 Russian Revolution, Gandhi admired the courage of the revolutionaries, but said the protesters had their methods wrong. When the 1906 Asiatic Law Amendment Ordinance was passed, which would, in effect, reduce most Indians to criminals with the need to constantly carry ID cards and residency permits, Gandhi met 3,000 Indian men at the Empire Theatre in Johannesburg. During this meeting, the men, led by Gandhi, agreed they would go to jail in order to defy the ordinance. Before the end of the year, several hundred Indians had gone to jail. Gandhi would later say, quote, The foundation of the first civil resistance, under the then known name of passive resistance, was laid by accident. I had gone to the meeting with no preconceived resolution. It was born at the meeting, the creating is expanding. Gandhi would call this invention of his Satagraha. With these practices ingrained, many in India begged Gandhi for his return. And so in 1915, Gandhi returned to India, being newly anointed as Mahatma to mean high-souled or venerable one. Gandhi's immediate problem in India was scale. In South Africa, there were 40,000 Indians. In India, there were 300 million. A mere 40,000 Indians revolting in India was not going to cause anything more than a minor disturbance. Gandhi began his mission quietly by travelling through India on third-class rail and organising small-scale revolts. With this start, non-cooperation was to continue for the next three decades. Various protests and strikes took place, most of them ending with Gandhi's arrest. In 1930, a campaign of non-cooperation against the salt tax took place, perhaps the most famous of Gandhi's actions. Gandhi marched with around 75 followers to the sea to make salt in defiance of the English monopoly on salt making. Gandhi was, of course, then jailed, and his followers marched upon the salt works at Darsana, where they suffered dozens of casualties at the hands of the police. The result was a constitutional conference in London, which failed, and there followed another decade of resistance. The Quit India campaign was launched in 1942, at the height of the Second World War, to try and gain Indian independence. It will of course never be answered how much Gandhi influenced the British decision to quit India, but after the Second World War, Britain did indeed quit India. I think that without Gandhi, it would have taken a lot longer for the British to leave India. But the more dignified the British could leave, and rather than losing in a military defeat like in Ireland, meant they were able to leave with dignity, something de Gaulle began to find out in Algeria and Indochina. In 1920, a Quaker lawyer, Richard Gregg, stumbled upon Gandhi's writing. After reading everything Gandhi had published, Gregg went to India to follow Gandhi for four years, 
before returning to the US to become a leading theorist on non-violence and writing the book The Power of Non-Violence in 1934, which he dedicated to Gandhi. The book is not a political tract. It is pragmatic and describes that non-violence works and is an effective way to get things done. This book in turn is influenced by George Hauser, A.J. Must and James Farmer, who organised the first Freedom Rides. The men recruited eight whites and eight blacks to sit in the wrong section of a segregated bus on a two-week journey through Virginia, North Carolina, Tennessee and Kentucky. For their troubles, two black men were given 30 days on a chain gang. In 1949, a young student at Crozer Theological Cemetery in Pennsylvania called Martin Luther King Jr., who had written that he had, quote, an inescapable urge to serve society, close quotes, attended a lecture by A.J. Must. King argued that, quote, the only way we could solve our problem of segregation was armed revolt, close quotes. However, later that year, King attended a lecture about Gandhi. This caused King to change his thinking. King would later say of his meeting with Must, quote, I wasn't a pacifist then, but the power of AJ's sincerity and his hard-headed ability to defend his position stayed with me through the years. Later, I got to know him better, and I would say unequivocally that the current emphasis on non-violent direct action in the race relations field is due more to AJ than anyone else in the country. Close quotes. The Montgomery, Alabama bus boycotts, which helped elevate King to the head of the civil rights movement, initiated the civil rights movement in the 1950s and 1960s. The civil rights movement became one of, if not the most, widely admired and influential non-violent resistant movements in history. It has been admired and emulated around the world. The civil rights movement led directly to the campaign for nuclear disarmament and the anti-war movement, often with the involvement of civil rights leaders. The idea of using non-violence against the white rulers of the South was not a natural one. Malcolm X was infamous for his attempt at violent revolution. He stated that, quote, there can be no revolution without bloodshed, close quotes. The use of violence against a much heavier armed group will almost always be self-defeating, especially in this situation. As Lawrence Guyot said, quote, they'll shoot us quicker if we're armed, close quotes. The Soviet Union, or evil empire, collapsed because of non-violent resistance and protest. The series of rebellions, East Germany, 1953, Poland and Hungary, 1956, and Czechoslovakia showed that all was not well behind the Iron Curtain. But even in the late 1970s, it was said no threat to the Soviet system would come from within. But these regions that had proved so disliking of Soviet rule would soon see the end of Soviet rule. In the 1980s, a movement by Polish dock workers managed to find a way to fight for modest goals without seemingly challenged the political system by only demanding limited reforms for freedom zones, freedom
free trade unions and other limited reforms, they could just about protest. However, these small protests quickly ended communist rule. In the 1970s, Jacek Kuron said to workers disaffected in Poland, quote, Don't burn down party committee headquarters. Found your own, close quotes. Kuron was the co-founder of the Workers' Defence Committee, a dissident Polish group. When, in August 1980, a spontaneous strike by workers in the Baltic shipyards spread like wildfire through Poland and created something similar to a general strike. The result was the founding of Solidarity in 1980, which debated its approach towards the Soviet Union, and only came to an end with the imposition of martial law in 1981. Another result of the debates with the Solidarity movement was the renunciation of violence. Solidarity was able to lay bare the weakness of Soviet rule. The result was the declaration by Gorbachev in December 1988, in which he said, quote, Necessity of the principle of freedom of choice is clear. Denying that right of peoples, no matter what the pretext for doing so, no matter what words are used to conceal it, means infringing even that unstable balance that it has been possible to achieve. Freedom of choice is a universal principle, and there should be no exceptions. Close quotes. Effectively ceasing the threat of Russian invasion of other satellite republics. The cessation of the threat of violence led to the collapse of the Soviet system within a year. The first partially free elections were held in Poland almost a year after the Gorbachev speech. Not a single communist won. With Poland rapidly on its way to freedom, Czechoslovakia, Hungary, East Germany, Bulgaria and Romania would soon follow. So the last case study is in South Africa. South Africa had almost everything wrong with it. Everything the 20th century taught us was wrong. It was a racial society. A white minority ruled over a black majority. It was national. Most whites considered themselves to be one nation, while there were many groups of black people with all different identities. It was colonial. The whites had installed themselves in several waves of colonisation from the Dutch to the British. It was also ideological. The dominant white government was firmly capitalist, but the dominant black organisations were strictly socialist and communist. Perhaps the only thing missing was a massive religious tension to complete the full house. Nelson Mandela was not a natural believer in non-violence. In the 1950s, he flatly rejected it. In 1951, the African National Congress called for a campaign of non-violent disobedience of the racial laws. Gandhi's influence was strong amongst the organisation, and many followed his leadership principles of non-violence. Some, such as Albert Luthali, saw non-violence as a tactic, saying, quote, I saw non-violence not as an inviolable principle, but as a tactic to be used as the situation demanded, close quotes. However, Mandela argued for armed conflict, and this method initially won out. It wasn't long before Mandela and other leaders were punished. In July 1963, Mandela was sentenced to life in prison and sent to Robben Island. Unlike the rest of the world, 
The 1960s in South Africa was a quiet time, and it took until the 1970s for large-scale protests to recontinue. In small-scale actions of boycotts to try and get small things overturned, like better sanitary or justice reform, or protesting the mandatory education of Afrikaners started to have some effects. Concurrently, the growth of the Mandela myth as it remained in prison, but the crucial fact was that Mandela had started to preach about non-violence from prison, and a civil war in South Africa was averted. There were several thousand people killed during the negotiations to end apartheid, but it could have been a lot worse. The phrase, the South African miracle, is often used to describe the way they non-violently moved from apartheid to open democracy. In a 1949 essay on Gandhi, George Orwell stated that non-violent resistance would not work against Soviet Russia. Gandhi's approach could not work against the modern totalitarian state. However, as we've seen on numerous occasions, including that of Russia itself, it did work. Writing from prison, Adam Michnik gave several arguments in favour of non-violence, quote, Taught by history, we suspect by using force to storm the Bastille, we shall unwittingly build new ones, close quotes. While James Madison stated that, quote, all governments rest on opinion, close quotes, even dictatorships. This is the power of non-violence. Even in justified circumstances, people do not like violence. Segregation in the United States was an abomination, but many people will take against the movement if they use violence to fight it. Non-violent resistance has worked time and time again. When used as a tactic, it has tackled some of the most repressive and worst regimes in the world. Though it is usually tackled these countries when they are at their lowest ebb. Nazi Germany or Stalinist Russia would have most likely just executed Gandhi for being a troublemaker. When these regimes start opening up and are amenable to dialogue, non-violent resistance is the best response. The Tiananmen Square protest remains an outlier. The Chinese were utterly remorseless in their put-down of that movement, though it wasn't easy. The Communist Party needed to ship in troops from another part of the country to carry out the massacre. If the protests had been nationwide, it might have succeeded. In many of these cases, it is often the soldiers defecting to the other side and refusing to carry out orders to kill the non-violent protesters, which ends the ruling government. So it remains to be seen whether non-violence could work against a regime utterly ruthless and determined enough to stay in power. Though my guess would be, if the protest was large enough and people were willing to sacrifice, it could work. Indeed, the ongoing Hong Kong protests against the Chinese extradition bill and the protests that seem to now happen every couple of years means we may start seeing what non-violence can do against the Chinese rule. We've talked about ideas being inventions, guerrilla warfare, modernism, and utilitarianism, but non-violence stands right there with them. It's the ability to change the world through not killing other humans that has revolutionized the act of protesting and that of civil disobedience, 
and for that reason non-violence should be commended and why it is listed at number 75 on my list of the greatest inventions of all time.